Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are excited to be joined by Franz Amason. Franz is an entrepreneur, a financial advisor, and a sailor. Franz has a background in financial services as he co-founded Amason and Hunkeser and Associates, now called Iron Gate Global Advisors which is an investment advisor. He is also an active angel investor and an avid podcaster, including several podcasts about various different financial aspects and getting your licenses, like a Series 7 license. And he also has a wonderful sailing podcast that I have been an avid listener to for many years. Yeah, France is a great example of someone who hit a bump along kind of life's path. Uh, in this case, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, the death of a close friend when he was young fundamentally shifted kind of, I think maybe we could call it his risk tolerance, and he decided to chase his dreams. But Franz is a great storyteller, and our listeners will love this. So I think sit back and enjoy the next 45 minutes or so. Yeah, so let's dive right into the uh, podcast with Franz. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Franz Amason. Uh, Franz is a member at Iron Gate Global Advisors. And while that may sound like not a very entrepreneurial uh, business and activity, uh, Franz really has a very entrepreneurial background that we will discuss. So, Franz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Franz uh, had me on his show, uh, which is a sailing podcast. Uh, the name of that show is Sailing the Mediterranean and Beyond. And so I was a guest of his, and uh, now I'm going to have Franz uh, as a guest here. So, Franz, let, well, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, if you are at a social event and uh, you get introduced to somebody and they say, oh, hello, Franz, very nice to meet you, and they ask you, Franz, what do you do? How do you answer that question? <laughs> That's a good question, and I'm asked that all the time. And uh, most of the time I say, well, I'm a sailor. But uh, the reality is I'm, I'm also an angel investor. I'm also a registered investment advisor. And uh, I'm also a father and grandfather. And, but really what seems to have set me apart from most of the people I, I hang out with is, uh, is the fact that uh, I sailed across the Atlantic in a boat that I built in 1997. And now I spend a couple months, except for this summer, sailing in the Mediterranean. Uh, and so that sets me apart. And that always brings up things to talk about, other things to talk about. Yeah, so it must be a pretty small uh, uh, collection of people, pretty small club of people who have built their own boat um, and then sailed it across the Atlantic. Yeah, I don't think there's, you know, I mean, there's a few people that have done it. Uh, most people buy a boat and sail across the Atlantic. And for me, uh, the, the, my, the backstory on that, if we want to go into that, is when I was about 15 or 16 years old, uh, there was a National Geographic article about Robin Graham, who at 16 years old was taking a Catalina 27 from the west coast of the United States, from California, and he was going to go sail around the world. And back then that was pretty unusual to do, especially a kid that young. And I could identify with, with this, and so he instilled in me that desire to travel by sailboat. So over the next well, over the next three or four years, I think National Geographic did three or four articles on him. 
And uh, of course, I grew up in Utah, and then my father went to Notre Dame, and and then I was dragged kicking and screaming from Utah back to Indiana uh, when I was just going into high school. So I never really grew up sailing, but it was something that from this article, it's interesting how how that can affect somebody, how your imagination can be stirred and motivated to to actually do something about it. Now, for me, I never even saw the ocean until I was, I think, a f- sophomore in college. I took a trip to California, but I always wanted to learn to sail. And, and uh, you know, I told my wife when we got married that that's what I wanted to do. And she said, okay, that's fine. That's fine. But uh, I, I actually went ahead and, and uh, learned how to sail by getting on a racing crew on the Great Salt Lake in Utah. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, that's nothing. Well, People that have never been seasick in their life will get seasick out there because the water is very dense and it's a shallow lake. And it was primarily a racing fleet. And we learned to sail in all conditions, very light winds and very heavy winds. And uh, and that's how I learned to sail. So I never knew that, you know, I never thought I would be able to afford a boat. Uh, I didn't come from a, a wealthy family. And there was a, a book that was written by Frederick Mate on uh, how to build a boat and he goes through and he builds a boat that well i can build a boat uh in spite of the fact that i think i got a d in woodworking in junior high school uh, <laughs> I, I i decided i was going to build my own boat so i spent five years building the boat during that time i was uh learning to sail by racing on the great salt lake and uh, and then we launched the boat up in uh, now when I say build the boat I bought the hull and deck and finished the boat myself so uh, it, it was basically a big bathtub with a lid on it when I got the boat and I had to put uh, in the entire interior do all the wiring do the engine rig the uh, rig the mast and so forth so so when I say build the boat that's sort of a, uh, a stretching it because I did have the hull and deck pre built so I didn't build the entire boat but. I built uh, probably 80% of the boat is the way I would say it. So we launched it up in the, the, um, the Northwest up in, uh, Anacortes, Washington. And we sailed up there for five years. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, and I always told my wife that I wanted to, to do an oceanic passage. And during that time we had actually chartered a boat in, um, Tahiti in Raiatea with a friend for a couple weeks. And then we also chartered a boat in Greece and went sailing for uh, a week with my family. And so when I, when I decided to sail, there was a real catalyst that actually made me do it. You know, a lot of people, most of us have dreams and, and most of us say, well, someday I'll do that. Someday I'll do that. Someday I'll do that. And for me, it was someday I'm going to uh, become an ocean sailing person, become a become an ocean sailor. I'm going to take my boat across the ocean. Well, one of my two close friends who was, well, I, you know, I had a couple close friends. I got a call one day and he had been killed in an automobile accident. So I went to his funeral and he was the same age as me. And this is, oh, 1997. And at his funeral, they kept getting up and saying, John wanted to do this and John really wanted to do that and John really wanted to do that. And, and I got to thinking, you know, you never know when the tapestry runs out. You shouldn't put off 
doing what you want to do until times are perfect because they'll never be perfect. After that funeral, I came back and told my wife, I'm going to sail across the Atlantic. She said, well, can we really afford it? And I said, well, I put together a balance sheet and showed it to her. I said, well, if this is not good enough, what number do we need? And she said, well, okay, get some more life insurance and go ahead and do that. She had no desire to sail with me across the Atlantic. So so that's what I did. But that has been by far, for me, uh, one of the most um, beneficial things that I've ever done. It, My daughters were raised sailing in the Mediterranean on their summer vacations for from the time they were in grade school until they graduated from high school. And they sort of thought that was normal until they realized it's, it's pretty rare to have that opportunity where they actually, you know, live on a boat for a couple of months or well, for them, it was always a few weeks because they never came over for the full two months. But for them, it was always, um, that's where they learned to li- love to read because you're not, you don't have the distractions that you do at home. They learned to love to read. And for me, that was something that set me apart and still sets me apart from most of the people I talk to. So anyway, but that's just the, that's just my passion, not, uh, not the business side of what I do. Yeah. You know, Franz, while, while you were uh, reminiscing that story, uh, it made me think about, you know, there's actually a, a lot of parallels there uh, between that and being an entrepreneur, right? You have a passion for something. You have a willingness to learn new skills, try new things. And you, you have a bias to take action and actually do something about it. Uh, and I think those are skills that entrepreneurs also have to have as well. Well, that's, that's right. And also recognize and take risks. You know, it, I have a little bit of entrepreneurial activity in my life. Um, you know, early on, <laughs> several failures along the way. Uh, early on, I saw when these nylon wallets came out, and this would have been back in the 1970s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, I decided, hey, these are not that hard to build. I'm going to go do a, build it. And so I hired a, sewing mach- uh, hired a sewer and bought a sewing machine and started going to work doing that, borrowed some money from my grandfather, quickly realized that uh, it was too competitive a market to make any money in and and quit the business, didn't really lose anything, paid back my grandfather and got out of that business. But that was early on. And, uh, and it's interesting when I've read some entrepreneurial stories of other people, other people did exactly the same thing that I did, that I did with these wallets. Mm-hmm. They were very popular back then and uh, were more successful at them. Uh, and that's skills that you have to learn. Now, the one, the one... Yeah, I'm an angel investor. So to me, that's where I see a lot of very great ideas coming from young entrepreneurs. I'm 66 now. I still have the desire to uh, to start businesses, but I'm not sure I have the energy to start businesses at my age. It takes a lot more energy than you think it does. But I see so many entrepreneurs that are coming up through the uh, through the university systems, coming out with ideas and going out and starting up startup companies that uh, I'm excited for the young entrepreneurs now because there's many more paths to getting funding now than there were when when I was a young man. Now we have these organized angel groups like I belong to. Now there's a lot of venture capital out there searching for new ideas. 
uh, when I did it back in the 70s, you had to basically go to family and friends and wealthy families to try to raise money. But now they're, the opportunities for raising funding for s- startups is is so much better than it used to be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, raising money has sort of gotten well organized. Yeah. Yeah. So, Franz, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, you're a CPA. And um, when you got well, your... Hold on, hold on, hold yep. on. I'm not a CPA. Let me turn off my phone here. Okay. Okay. I'm not a CPA. I passed the CPA exam. I went to school and I studied economics and accounting. And um, when I graduated, I, I was too young to even take the CPA examination. I, I graduated when I was 20 years old, and you had to be 21 to take the exam back then. And uh, and so I, when I was old enough to take the exam, I sat for the exam and eventually passed the exam and went to work for a CPA firm uh, – not one of the big eights, just a local CPA firm. And uh, <laughs> to actually be a CPA, you have to go to, through an apprenticeship. Mm. And the apprenticeship uh, at that time was, I think, two years. So you you had to pass the exam and then work for a firm for two years. Well, I went. my first job out of college was that of an outside claims adjuster for Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. And it was by far one of the most interesting jobs I've ever had. I only dealt with high liability cases. Uh, I was what was an outside adjuster, not the guys that did your fender bender or or did the appraisals on your house for damage. But but if somebody uh, had fallen in a store and uh, they were suing the store for liability or somebody uh, was suing a doctor for medical malpractice or... I dealt with public liability, product liability, malpractice insurance, and workman's compensation insurance. So my job was to go out and investigate the claim. And I give this to Liberty Mutual. If if the claim was legitimate, they told me, settle the damn claim. Get it done. Settle it. We don't want to fight a claim that's, that's clearly the fault of our insured. It's not, it's not what we do. We try to, try to negotiate a fair settlement. And if the people were unreasonable and didn't or didn't feel that our offered settlement was enough, then we would – my job was to gather the evidence and prepare it for court and give that to our attorney to try in court. But we never wanted to go that route. Our goal was to uh, settle the cases and move on because that's what an insurance company does. You know, an insurance company is just taking your money to eventually give it back to you when you eventually have an accident. That's what it is. Right. And the combined ratio tells you whether they have a, a um, underwriting profit or underwriting loss. And most insurance companies are very close to breaking even on the actual premiums versus the claims. And where insurance companies used to make money, and I don't know how they're making money anymore, was they would – it was the float. How much money – how long would you have that money before you had to pay the claim? And, uh, and that's where the insurance companies used to make their money because they could take that money and invest it at 5 to 10% in fixed income investments and, uh, and uh, make, the, make the under – not the underwriting profit but the investment profit. Nowadays with interest rates near zero, I don't know how insurance companies can, can make an investment profit without taking significant risk. But anyway, that was the job I did. I, I sort of <laughs> went on a tangent. But anyway – I went from this job where I had complete control. In fact, when I 
got out of college. This company hired me. I was 20 years old. They sent me down to Los Angeles for six weeks of training. When I got back to Salt Lake, they gave me a company car and an expense account, some claims to start working on, and said we don't want to see in the office more than one day a week. Well, during that period of time, I worked for Liberty Mutual, which was about a year and a half. I went ahead and studied and passed the CPA examination and went from a job where I had complete control of my time, where my job was interesting, to going to work for a CPA firm, where basically I sat at a, at a desk and punched a 10-key adding machine for eight hours a day and went home. And finally on an audit, I turned to one guy next to me and I said, do you really enjoy what you're doing? He said, I really do. I said, well, I'm glad you found your niche in life because I sure haven't. Accounting is essential if you're going to be in business, but the actual practice of accounting, from my perspective, back in the day, this is before computers, was mind-numbing for me. And I did not... I did not last the full two years to become a a CPA. So that's why I needed to clear you up on that. Okay. And and, uh, so after you found yourself in this job... uh, tickling the keys on a, on a, uh, adding machine, uh, and, and not liking it very much. What did you do after that? I quit. Um, and I went to work for, now let we got to back up a little ways. Now, why did I study economics and accounting? Well, I started investing in the stock market when I was still in high school and I, in, I found it fascinating and interesting. So Before I graduated from high school, I went to my stockbroker and I had a tiny account. And, you know, technically, you have to have your parents write okay on any transactions that are done in a uniform gift to minors account. But my dad told the broker, he said, hey, listen, it's his money. It's money he earned. Whatever he wants to do with it, go ahead and do whatever he wants to do with it. So I I learned the essentials of um, stock analysis I went to my broker before I graduated from high school, and I said, what do I need to do to become a stockbroker like you? And he said, well, go to school, study economics and accounting, and then go out in the real world and don't even consider coming into the business until you're at least 30 years old because nobody's going to trust you as a young kid out of college with their money. Right, and along, right. the way, along the way, get some sales experience. And so, you know, I'd done the degree, worked with an accounting firm. I said, well, okay, it's time to go get my uh, my sales experience. So I went to work for a company that sold electrical wire, cable, fasteners, and terminals. So I was calling on industrial customers and selling, selling products and going out. And I worked for that company for about five years. And when I turned 30 years old, I went to uh, interview for th- with three firms and I was jo- offered uh, f- free brokerage firms. I'm now, now it's time for me to go and do what I actually planned on doing. And that's when I finally went into the investment business was at that point in time. So it was easy to get a job. Once I, once I had laid the foundation, it was easy to get a job. Yeah, yeah. And did you uh, do that at one of the big firms or a smaller firm? It was Shearson Lehman. Okay. Shearson Lehman, which, no lo- which became Shearson Lehman Hutton, which is, I don't even know what they are now. I think they're part of part of Wells Fargo or something now. But yeah, it was a big firm at the time. I was offered a job at every firm I talked to. I was offered a job at Merrill Lynch and at Shearson Lehman, or I just chose Shearson Lehman. Yeah. And how yeah. long were and how long were you there, Franz? Well I was I worked in that business from nineteen eighty five uh until 
2000. Uh, but not at that particular firm. Yeah, brokers tend to move around. Sure. I worked through three different wirehouses during that period of time. And in 2000, my partner and I set up um, uh, uh, what was initially Amazon, Hunsaker and Associates, and we changed the name to Iron Gate Global Advisors. And we switched from being commission-based uh, brokers to being registered investment advisors where we sit on the same side of the table as our client. And, uh, and our income goes up as our client's performance goes up or goes, yeah, in other words, we're based, we are paid based on the assets we manage. So our objective is to see the assets grow. Right. Right. So, uh, that was your own business though, right? So that was your, you and your partner started a separate firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started out and we started a firm again, we're registered investment advisors and we don't, take custody of our client's assets. That's the big deal. If you if you want to take custody of your client's assets, you have to be a broker-dealer. We're registered investment advisors. Uh, don't take custody of the assets. We have to custody the assets at a broker-dealer. And we tend to custody the assets at uh, wherever our clients want us to custody the assets. We just manage the portfolio. Mm. We have discretionary authority over their accounts. Yeah. As a general rule, we tend to use Schwab or TD Ameritrade, but now they're going to be the same company. So, but it doesn't really matter. Wherever our clients want us to custody the assets, that's where the assets are custody. So what was the uh, impetus or motivation for, for you to leave the big firm and, and with another person start your own? Yeah. A, a couple things. Um, the first thing is when you work in the sales field and, and being a broker deal is dealer, you are basically a salesperson. Um, I never, and never, never in the entire time that I worked for a broker dealer <coughs> was I ever asked, how's your customer doing? How's your client performance on his investments doing? It was always how much commission did you generate this year? And, um, so it was never never customer performance oriented. It was always commission performance oriented. And that gives you a natural tendency to want to transact business in clients' accounts, whether or not it's for the client's benefit. And so I just, I just didn't like, didn't want to do that anymore. And so I basically, we said, Brian and I left and he was feeling the same way. And we told our clients that, you know, we're leaving if you want to work with this from here on out, it's not going to be based on commissions. It's going to be based on performance and assets under management. And most of our clients followed us. They didn't have a problem doing that. Yeah. And of course, uh, we built the business up since then. So when you started this business, uh, what were the first couple months like? What were the challenges? Uh, what things were easier than you thought they'd be and what things were harder than you thought they would be? Oh, boy, that's going back a ways. Um, really, you know, you, when you first start out, it's basically reaching – because you can't really – you can't prospect your clients while you're working for the other firm. And, uh, and, and really what it was is contacting the clients, telling the new situation, asking them if they wanted to work with me. And, and most of them said yes, and uh, a few of them said no. And going through the reams and reams and reams of paperwork for actually setting up the accounts and transferring the accounts into, in this case, from um, uh, the firm that I was at to to Shearson Lehman. It, it was just 
it, it, it really wasn't that hard. It was just a lot of detail work. Yes, yes. And, and the detail is mind-numbing, and especially in this business where we're so highly regulated. Um, but, it, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't unexpected. If I did not have a base of clients that I'd developed re- a relationship over, over a 10 to 15-year period of time, uh, you know, I don't know how you would start out without having a base of clients or or people that you you know that trust you with their funds. So I mean, we had a we had a track record with these clients. I had I had a track record with the clients. Brian had a track record with his client track track record with his clients. And so for for us, it was just continuing our relationship, but under a different uh, compensation plan instead of being paid by commission transactions uh we're paid now on performance and assets under management and so it really wasn't that hard now growing a business is always difficult um and how do you get people to trust you with their money that's the big question you just have to meet them and talk to them and develop a relationship with them so and uh, so you've been doing this for 20 years? Yeah, I think you said you started yeah. in 2000, yeah. so yeah, 20 years. 20 and years, uh, yeah. is it still just the two of you uh, or is, has the firm no, grown? No, I'll 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 be quite honest, my partner Brian Brian Hunsaker, he's taken he's taken the bull by the horn and he's expanded the uh, the business really well. Uh we've we've increased our assets under management by a factor of probably 20. Uh, we've hired, um, one, two, three, four, four other people. And we just acquired another firm. Um, so no, it's expanding, it's expanding, but I will give 100% of the credit to my partner, Brian, for expanding it and not to me, me, I'm, (laughs) I'm pretty comfortable, you know, as long as I can go sailing a couple months every year and I have my good client base and I make a good income. I'm not as motivated as Brian is, quite honestly. Yeah. He's quite a bit younger than me, too. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have a partner like that, right? Uh, particularly yeah. when when your your desires are are as they are, and his are the way he wants them. So it, it's a nice uh, nice partnership. Mm-hmm. That's great. And um, go ahead. I'll tell you about one other entrepreneurial thing that I did years ago. Yes. So this is actually a pretty good story. So. I've got I, one of my childhood friends became a commercial fisherman in Alaska, and he also became my one of my clients when I was uh, working for Shearson Lehman. And he called me up one day and he said, "Hey Franz, uh, I need to set up a uh, uh, what was it a uh, capital construction fund." And I said, what? What's a capital construction fund? He said, oh, well, you wouldn't know about it. But there's a specific code in the IRS where commercial fishermen are allowed to take 100% of the income that they make and put it into what is called a capital construction fund and defer the, that income from taxes. And... Um, and, you, and when they want to go buy a new boat, they take the money out of the capital construction fund and go buy a new boat without any tax consequences, as long as they use it for the intended purpose, which is to buy new, uh, new, new fishing equipment. And 
one of the little key things to this was is if you pulled any income derived from the capital construction fund out every year, uh, you could do that. So if you put, uh, and this is back in the day when you could get uh, 7% on municipal bonds. And so what he did is he put all this money into a capital construction fund and put, uh, we bought a lot of municipal bonds for him and he would take the money earned on that municipal bonds out tax-free because municipal bond Mm -hmm. income is tax-free and he would take that out every year. And I got to thinking, I said, well, you know, we have a, we have a commercial fishery in Utah. I need to go talk to our commercial fishermen in Utah. And you probably say, what commercial fishery? Well, the Great Salt Lake is the largest single source of Artemia salina, or in other words, brine shrimp eggs. And brine shrimp eggs are harvested off the Great Salt Lake in the winter. Uh, the brine shrimp uh, uh produce these eggs they float to the surface on very calm days and you go out and you can scoop these up and there's a very very specific market for brine shrimp eggs and that is primarily the shrimp farms in southeast asia and also other fish farms so i got a list of the state of all the uh fishermen out on the great salt lake and there were about 10 of them and i started making calls onto these fishermen i said you know you need to um consider setting up a capital construction fund and they'd never heard of it but they were so secretive in what was going on out there that i thought well why are they so secretive why why don't they want to tell me about this and i said well the only reason they're going to be so secretive is because it's extremely profitable Mm -hmm. so i said what would it take to start a firm like theirs and i thought well i went up to the state i i bought a permit i set up a corporation and a a partner and i said set up a brine shrimp company on the Great Salt Lake. We hired commercial fishermen in Alaska, for out of Alaska to come down and, and run our boats. And our intention all along had been to, uh, at some point in time, sell it. We didn't want to become brine shrimp fishermen ourselves. But we ran this business for about, about three years. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to get into this business is every fishery in Alaska is limited entry. If you don't have a permit, you're not going to buy a permit unless you buy it from somebody else. And I thought, you know, I bet they do that on the Great Salt Lake at some point in time. And during the time we own this, yes, they shut down any new permits issued on the Great Salt Lake for harvesting brine shrimps. And now we had a piece of a monopoly and that permit became very valuable. And so we eventually sold our permit to, uh, well, actually our whole business to somebody uh, out there, somebody else. And that's how we got out of that business. But that was an opportunity that I saw that I acted on. Uh, and the window for that opportunity closed within uh, oh, within a two-year period after we started it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story, right? It's opportunity recognition and good timing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, fabulous. And uh, so you also do some angel investing. How did you yeah. get? How did you get into that? Well, you know what I do every day is evaluate publicly traded companies, and, and a lot of people don't like to admit this, but you know when a company uh, in, goes public on the market, the only time the company actually raises money is when they do the initial public offering or any secondary offerings that they do after their initial public offering. And so the stocks that trade, as a general rule, it's always based on the greater fool theory. In other words, 
You know, you you got to be willing to pay more for the stock than to make a profit on it. And so I always say, well, we're. <laughs> I hope there's a lot more greater fools than me. And of course, companies' performance do affect the value of the stock, but nonetheless, it's all perception. And and I like entrepreneurs, and I'd heard that we had a, a bit of an entrepreneurial culture here in Utah. In fact, I knew we had a very strong entrepreneurial culture here in Utah. The universities teach it. There's a lot of innovation coming out of the university. And so I searched around for a group to find, and there were two groups that I could have joined. One was Park City Angels, headquartered up in Park City, and then the other one was uh, Salt Lake City Angels. So uh, probably about six years ago, I started, I joined Salt Lake City Angels. And um, yeah, and the nice thing about belonging to a group like uh, like an angel group. When I first joined it, we would bring in companies and typically the way we work, we have um, a screening meeting once a month. And in the screening meeting, we will have mm, maybe four to eight companies come in and give 10-minute pitches on their company. And from those initial screenings, we will invite two back to the general meeting and out of the two, we will um, decide as a group what we want to do, whether we want to pursue due diligence or whether we'll pass on it. And when I first joined it, if you wanted to make an investment, uh, you basically had to go at that point in time and talk to the company and make a, um, an investment on your own. We changed that a few years ago to where we now set up single-purpose vehicles for making an investment. So we're a single-line item on the cap table of the uh, of the company. And what this does, it allows me to become much more diversified in my angel investing than I would before. Because if I were to take, if I were to go to um, a new startup company and I'll, I'd say, okay, I want to be an investor, they'd say, okay, we need a minimum of. Uh, Twenty or thirty thousand dollars from you, and for me that would be too much invested in one high risk investment for me to feel comfortable with that. With the special purpose vehicle that we set up, uh, as long as we have an interest of fifty thousand dollars within the group, you can make as much or as little of an investment into these angel companies as you as you want to. Yeah, these right. new startups as you want to. So now I can get a much more diversified portfolio. I can put uh, two thousand. I can put five thousand. I can put ten thousand. I can put a hundred thousand. Uh, we're doing a, an angel investment now, where one of our one of one member of our group is going to put a million dollars into this company, but I'm only going to be putting five thousand dollars. So that gives me the ability to diversify um, my risk in angel investing. Which are the original fools? That's why. Right. That's why I come back to the greater fool. <laughs> I'm the original fool on yeah. these angel investors. So, yeah. you know, you're right at the very beginning, and uh, you're providing capital for the seeding of these companies. And and I really enjoy what I see coming down. You know, I, I like to see what new ideas are coming out, and I, it, it, to me, it's exciting, and. Uh, if I were to start all over again, I would definitely go in and work with a group and, and find some technology that I think is interesting, start a group, put together some funding, and, and go down that path rather than 
the path I went down yeah. in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, angel groups have been uh, very creative in, in how they organize and, and how they do their investing. Uh, so there's not one model. So I think it's become a, a much larger powerhouse than it was, say, 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, I've interacted, uh, being a former venture capitalist, I've interacted a fair amount with some angel groups. And uh, it's always interesting to hear how they decide what their investment vehicles are going to be and how they structure the group. Uh, is there a particular uh, type of business that you guys invest in? Are they technology companies? Are they consumer products? Or, or is there particular sectors? Yeah, let me pull out my – I've made so many investments over the years. All right, let me let me get my – all right. Uh, I've invested in a distillery. I've invested in a company that uh, th- – this one I lost all my money on, which made a – a new breast pump for women. Um, I've invested in um, a, a company that uh, this is the one I probably put more money into than anything, but uh, it's a um, a company called Ivina, and they make, they they pitch the group on. When you have cataract surgery, when you and we're all going to get that at some point in time as we get older, probably, you have to go through a very specific group of uh, drops in your eyes right after the surgery. And this doctor Bala up at the University of Utah had come up with instead of having to force down these drops, as elderly people tend to forget to take their medicines, during the surgery he could put down a little, a little. Uh, grain about the size of a grain of sand under the flap and that would release the drug into the eye as needed and that would eliminate the need for the um, for the drops now that's still in development so that's a company we've invested in um i invested in another biotech company i invested in a, a company called DemoChimp, which in is um puts out um or, or goes in and produces uh, sales videos for companies and lets them track the the follow up and the uh, the use of those sales videos. They pivoted a little bit. They haven't really been too successful. So really, we what we see is we see a lot of different companies, and I, I'm just investing right now in a company that makes um, a water jet dental device. That's one we're working on yeah. right now. Yeah. So for the, you, what's the What's the thing that triggers you making an investment, deciding to write a check? For me, you know, it's hard to put your finger on it, but I got to have a, a real good comfort level with the entrepreneur. And it's just like we said, uh, yes, well, we had a meeting on Tuesday, the general group, and some the, we invited it back. We invited back one of the entrepreneurs would seen in the screening meeting. And one of the first things after he got done making his pitch, one of the members said, I like the technology. I don't like him. So that's going to be one of the things that you have to feel comfortable with is, is the uh, entrepreneur, how well they present themselves, um, their grasp of what they're trying to do. And you know, what we think the market is one company that I made an investment in, which I forgot to talk about is a company called incorporate massage. And what drew me that to this company was, it's a, a this is a 
company started by a woman, and she her story is really interesting. She, you know, she was her husband had lost his job, and she needed to bring some money in. She was a massage therapist, but she realized that the opportunity wasn't in her doing the work, but in uh, organizing massages. But she went after the corporate market. And, uh, of course, now her business is having to pivot drastically. But she went out and and uh, pitched this as corporate massages for wellness and, and employee benefits and started pitching not to individuals but to businesses. So she now organizes individual massage therapists to go into businesses and on specific days as benefits to the employees, they will give them a massage. They put up their massage table. But she's built this business from nothing. I think she's over a million dollars in annual recurring revenue right now and growing very quickly. But it was her her, <laughs> her innovation and her stick to itness and her drive that that drew me to the business, not because I'm going to make a 20 times exit on this. I'll probably make a five times exit on it when she finally goes, but she's following on her plan. She's doing exactly what she said. She communicates well, and she's the only one of all these companies that I've invested in that makes darn sure that she sends out an investor update every month, good or bad challenges she's having, if she, she often puts in these updates, I'm looking for people with these specific skills. If you know anybody, will you get a hold of me or have them contact me? So she's using angels as we are intended to be used as a source of information and support for her company. And, you know, that, that's a pretty dull, boring business, but she's you know, most businesses make money that are dull and boring. Very few of the gee whiz high-tech companies really do yeah. as well as you think they're doing. <laughs> yeah, ain't that true. You know, that communication, um, I'm glad you brought that up because it's so important. Uh, and it and it makes you, as the angel investor, feel part of that organization. It makes you feel valued. And and it's very, you know, strategic on her part, I think, to do that because it, it engages you. It engages your expertise uh, which helps supplement her abilities and her expertise. And by keeping engaged, you're probably also much more likely to write another check if needed. Right, exactly. And, and we know what she's struggling with. I mean, suddenly her entire business was shut down because of the COVID virus. She she can't send people out there to go give massages right now. Right. right. And companies aren't even allowing their employees to come into work right now. Well, I think they're starting to, but it's been a, a tough tough situation right now yeah we'll see how it works out in a in a year or two yeah but yeah so i i i i think you also do several podcasts in addition to your sailing one <laughs> yeah. uh and uh having doing this podcast now for over two years we're going to hit 100 episodes soon uh, there's no real financial reasons to do a podcast because there's no money in it uh, but you've done some uh, much more educational podcasts what was sort yeah. of your impetus for doing that? Well, I was actually one of the early adopters of podcasting. I, I mean, I I was involved in radio and broadcasting in high school. I belonged to an Explore post that specialized in radio and television broadcasting, and it taught me a lot of the skills needed for radio. And I've always enjoyed audio. I'm an audio fan. I'm not really – I like videos, but I don't produce videos because it takes too much work, but I'm an audio fan. 
So initially, my partner and I uh, started a podcast called uh, the Invest Stock Analyst Podcast, and we we um, you know early on this would have been at least twelve years ago, and we hosted our our uh, feed through a company called Big in Japan, and the company went bankrupt, and we lost our feed, and we said, "Well, okay, forget that." Well, later on, I thought I, I want to do another podcast, so I started trying to do a podcast. A lot of stops and failures along the way. I wanted. To, I started a podcast called Travel Trade Exchange. I'm passionate about traveling, and I thought I could set up a podcast where people would share their travel experiences in audio format with me. Went down that path, and again, I I hired somebody to develop the website. He did it in PHP. I don't understand PHP. Um, I needed to have work done on the pod uh, on the on the f- website, and he got killed in a accident, a motorcycle accident, and I didn't have anybody else that could go in there and fix it. So I shut down that podcast. And then I, then I discovered WordPress and PowerPress, and I said, well, from now on, I'm going to control the back end of it myself. And so I started another podcast, uh, which was – I've had a lot of them off, the, off and on. It's easy to start a podcast, by the way. It's hard to keep it going because it takes a lot more time and effort than you think it does, as you know. Anyway, the next one I started was um, – I think actually it was the sailing in the Mediterranean and sailing in the Mediterranean, the one you listened to. But I, along the way, I also started another podcast, which is called the Series 7 Podcast. And the Series 7 Podcast started out as basically lessons for those who are getting ready to prepare for the Series 7 exam. And I've turned this podcast into um, an actual business where I actually make money off of it. I the podcast now is probably one of my top performing podcasts, but it's only for a very narrow audience for those who are studying to work in the financial services industry. And it's an educational podcast, which teaches you some of the concepts that you're going to need to understand in order to pass the series seven examination. The series seven examination is the general license that all brokers are required to pass before they're allowed to sell investment products to the general public. Of course, you have to be sponsored by a broker-dealer to get your Series 7. They changed that exam a couple years ago, and now before you can even take the Series 7 exam, you have to pass the Securities Industries Essentials exam. And so now I have uh, two main podcasts. I have the SIE podcast, which is teaching people how to pass the Securities Industries Essentials exam. The Series 7 podcast, I have an insurance podcast because if you're going down this path to work in the financial services industries, typically you have to pass uh, – well, now you have to pass the SIE exam. You have to pass the Series 7 exam. Um, you have to pass the Series 63 exam, which is a state administered exam. And, uh, and then there's a bunch of other exams you can take too. So I've – developed a series of podcasts around these exams. In fact, when you call today, I just finished up the Series 6 exam. Um, and the Series 6 exam is typically for those who are selling strictly um, mutual funds, not the general securities that you do with the Series 7. So it's a much easier exam to take. But people who work for insurance companies 
most often will be required to pass the Series 6 exam and not the Series 7 exam. So those are the podcasts that I've gone after. And I just think back to when I was studying for the Series 7 exam. The company I worked for, Shearson Lehman, told me to come into the office. They would give me a big stack of lessons that I had to go through, and I had to go through one a day. And I thought, wow. I, I would much rather go for a walk and listen to somebody teaching me these concepts than having to sit here reading this book. Um, and so that's why I went and created these podcasts was to 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 have some, to give something to somebody that I didn't have when I was studying for the exam. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, these these lessons are very long. I mean, the series seven exam is thirty three hours in total length, and. So on the podcast, I'll let people listen to several of the lessons and parts of the other lessons. And if they think it where it makes sense for them, then they can pay me for the full full audio course. Yeah. And so that's turned into be a, a regular business that makes money. Oh, that's great. You know, it always amazes me, uh, particularly in this day and age, all the various different ways there are to uh, make some income. Uh, it, it, it's just like unboundless and, and the opportunities are there just for the discovering and, you know, finding your niche and taking those first steps, uh, taking those first action steps to actually do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I started out the series seven, I didn't think I was going to actually make money off of it, but I started getting such a following and, and it ended up taking so much work that eventually I, when I first started the Series 7 exam, I put every every lesson out for free, and then eventually I, I took them off, and now I just give sample lessons, and like I say, full lessons on several of them, and if it makes sense, then people can pay me for the full series of audio lessons. I say, you know, try before you buy, and that's worked out well. And so that's how to, what I do with all my financial education podcasts, is basically try it if it makes sense for you, if you like my teaching style. Yeah, and it's worth it to you. Pay me for it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, Franz, uh, you've been a wonderful guest. We've been going at this uh, for 50 minutes almost, and uh, I want to wrap this up. Is there anything that I have not asked you that I should have? No, no. I was thinking the same thing. I thought, boy, we've gone 50 minutes already, and it's time for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. Your story is, it really fascinates me from all the various different things you've done. And uh, it's been really nice to get to know you a little bit better. Thanks, Bela. You take care. You too. Quite a life, Francis led, Bela. Um, you've been an angel investor. Let's talk about that for a second. How do you feel about these angel groups, like what Francis has been a part of? Um, what are the pros and cons? So I think these angel groups are absolutely critical uh, to the economic and entrepreneurial backbone of the of this of the United States, um, oftentimes angel investors are the first ones, uh, sort of the first outside of the family, if you will, that invest in a business, and uh, so they play an important critical role. And when I was in the venture capital business, I would say eighty percent of the companies we invested in as a venture capitalist had already previously secured angel investing. Um, so it really plays an important element. Uh, and I think that uh, the reasons angels invest is often different than uh, 
the reasons why venture capitalists invest. I think angels often, and my, here's my theory. So let me show you my theory about angels and, and why one invests in, in, in a company. I think a large element of it is because the angel investor sees something in the entrepreneur or sees something that they identify with. And it's part of their way of sort of uh, giving back. It's part of their way of mentoring uh, and their way of saying, you know what? I want to support this person because I like the person. I like what this person is doing. Um, And, you know, when you, when I put my venture capitalist hat on, uh, those elements may be there, but the primary element is a venture capitalist needs to make a financial return. Angel investors also want to make a financial return, but I don't think it's always their number one priority. It might be a close second. Um, so I think angels are really important. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's good to know. And the other interesting thing is, uh, there's various different types of angels. Sometimes there's the solo practitioner. It's it's a, a high net worth individual who has some money that they want to invest, and they'll go find companies and and uh, get uh, relationships and make some investments on their own. Others uh, angels have banded together, and there are various different angel groups, uh, and you can always find these. Uh, not always, but most of the times you can find them on the internet because they have websites or at least they've had stories written about them. So for example, New York City, Boston, uh, San Francisco, a lot of these large metropolitan areas uh, have multiple angel groups. Uh, Here in uh, upstate New York, uh, there's an angel group in Buffalo, there's one in Rochester, there's one in Syracuse, there's one in Albany. Uh, So even in the rural areas, there are these angel groups and angel investors. So if you're an entrepreneur, and you need some capital, uh, angels are a great place to go. Now, let me just say one thing about the amount of capital. Uh, angel investors typically write checks in the hundreds of thousands of dollars category. Let's say tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's very rare that they're going to write a $5 million check. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, uh, but chances are Uh, They're smaller amounts, and they're great ways to get your business off the ground and get started. So that's uh, those are my thoughts on angel investors, Mike. What's the typical return that angels ask for? How do they how do they structure these type of angel deals? In your, I know there's a range, but what what typically do you see? So oftentimes, uh, these early amounts will will come in as uh, what's called convertible debt. Mm -hmm. So it'll actually go on the books as a loan. But it's a loan that can be converted into shares of stock at some future point in time. And that conversion rate uh, is often a function of uh, subsequent financing that happens in the future. So uh, I didn't say that very well. But let's say an angel makes a a convertible note uh, investment today uh, of a, a let's say $50,000, and, and that, is, that debt will convert to equity a year from now when some venture capitalist invest in the company. And that loan, so if it was a $100,000 loan, it will in essence buy $100,000 worth of shares of stock, or it will convert into $100,000 worth of shares of stock when that venture capitalist makes the investment. And usually 
there's a little bit of a discount. So there's a little bit of an incentive uh, so that the angel angel's getting a better price because they invested earlier. So that's a very common way is this uh, convertible note. Uh, and you can go to uh, Angel Networks. Uh, you can search the internet and you can find some standard uh, convertible note documents that you can use as sort of a template and that will give you some ideas of, of the various different clauses and things that are part of this. But I would say the convertible note is probably the most common. And the second one uh, would be just straight equity. So they're just going to buy shares of stock at a particular valuation. So those are uh, typically how they're done. And the difference between, for I think most of our listeners know this, but probably not everybody, the difference between a, a loan and an equity in terms of giving up control over your operations, how do you see the differences between the two, Bela? So equity means the person actually owns a part of your company. Uh, so they may have various different rights with that ownership. Uh, they may get a seat on the board of directors. Uh, they may get to approve uh, various different actions the company takes. Uh, they may need to, uh, you'll probably have to have a shareholders meeting at least once a year, at least in this country. Uh, and you'll have to do certain things. Uh, as an entrepreneur, uh, a loan is a loan. It's expected to get paid back. Uh, and just like you borrow money from a bank, uh, they're going to expect you to pay that loan back. Uh, <clears throat> more, more often than not, uh, angels uh, may give you some very nice terms on that loan. In other words, you don't have to make payments for 12 months. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to pay me back based on uh, a, a percentage of your annual sales. Uh, so there's often various different creative ways of, of getting paid back. Now, of course, the one big important difference between uh, a debt and equity is that there, if there is a liquidation of the company, um, the debt just gets paid back. Let's say the company gets sold and the company owes you $100,000 uh, with interest, and then when the company gets sold, they're just going to pay that note off. They're just going to pay you back. Uh, if you have shares of stock, <clears throat> hopefully when the company gets sold, uh, those shares of stock are worth a lot more money than what you paid for them five, six years ago. So that's one important difference. The other important difference is, let's say the company closes because things didn't go well. Well, if there's anything left in the bank or any assets left in the company, the debt holders stand in line in front of the shareholders. <clears throat> so at the, at the end of the day, uh, when there's a liquidation <clears throat> because things didn't go well, if there's any money left over, it's going to get handed on a pro rata basis out to the debt holders before the equity holders get anything. So that's another important difference. Yeah. So there's a lot of trade-offs. So while we're thinking about angel investing, I think it's good to give people just a little brush up on a primer and what to be looking for, what to be asking for, kind of understanding the basics of the different ways that you can get an angel investment. Because it's it's common and lots of, lots of, as you said, lots of businesses start this way. So yeah, interesting stuff. Um, I loved the insights that um, Franz shared uh, in terms of you know, he has only had one of these, he's done all kinds of, of angel investments and he's only had one where the company sent out a regular monthly investor update. And, you know, I think this is really important. Why don't more business founders do this? 
Boy, that's a great question, Mike. And and you know, oftentimes business founders take excellent care of their customers, right? They they, they send out a, a monthly newsletter to their customers uh, about various different new products or services or whatever. Uh, well, remember your investors, whether they be someone you got a loan from or whether they be someone who made an equity investment in you, are your customers as well. They're the ones who helped you launch the business. Uh, they're the ones who helped you often launch the business before you had customers who were buying your product. And so I think this notion of sending out regular periodic communications to your debt holders and your investors is really, really important. Uh, and, you know, this is a place to, to be honest. It's a place to develop relationships. And these relationships are important to you. Oftentimes, when you raise money, you very rarely raise enough money the first time to build your successful business. Oftentimes, you have to go back to the well. You have to go back and raise additional money. And the people who've already given you money, if they feel good about your business, there's a good chance they're going to invest additional funds into your business. So you got to make them feel good. You got to build that relationship. You got to build that trust, right? And oftentimes people who invested in your company a year ago, they also have friends and relationships of other individuals who have the capacity to invest in your company. So again, building these relationships, taking care of your shareholders and your investors uh, by communicating with them is really, really important. And I'll tell you, you know, even in my venture capital days, when we were writing two, three, four, five million dollar checks into companies, there were some companies that were really good at this. Again, they sent out monthly or quarterly, you know, a statement, not statements, but sort of communications to their to their investors. And others were not. And um, it it just gives you an air of confidence about the company. And this sort of these folks really have their act together. They know what they're doing. Not only do they value their, their investors, if they value their investors, they probably value all the other important elements of their business as well. So I think it's an important thing to do, and I'm glad Franz brought that point up. Yeah, and even when it's bad news, I want to hear about it early. I don't want to get surprised down the road. And you know what? I can't help you if, you don't, if you're not honest with me with what you need help with. And I think Franz gave the example of, oh, we need some, you know, the, the company said, oh, we need talent. If you know anybody with these skills, I mean, these are great ways. Angel investors typically are well networked in the uh, ecosystems in which they're operating. Uh, and they really can help if you give them the opportunity to help um, because every where our interests are aligned. Right. If I'm the angel investor and you're the entrepreneur, we both want you to succeed very much. Right. Um, but, yeah, if you don't communicate a lot of. Um, entrepreneurs that I know and founders that I know, if things are heading south, they clam up and they stop um, giving updates to the investors because they're nervous and they're scared. And that's actually the time where you double down and share more information and say, hey, here's where I need some help and see what they can do for you. And I've seen a lot of businesses get turned around that way. Um, and I've seen a lot fail because they don't reach out for help when they need it. They try to do it themselves and they're embarrassed. But, um, but yeah, so I think there's the upside and the downside of this. Um, when the businesses are going... Great, yeah, you want to let them know. Uh, but when the business is not going so great, you want to let your investors know too what's what's up and, and ask for help. So I think that's cool. The other thing I thought was interesting with Franz was, you know, kind of his history in podcasting. You know, it's an interest that 
you have and that you've kind of dragged me into and now I'm interested in this as well. Um, and his greatest success, it seems to me, was in the very narrowest of niches. He really had this focused target market. Um, he's got, you know, really the the sailing and then the, the Series 7's podcast, which I guess is pretty popular, and he's built a business on it. What's your thoughts on the right way to approach a podcast? Oh, gosh, Mike, if I, if I knew that, our podcast would be listened to by millions. Uh, I think there, there's an important element here, and, and that is uh, given the uh, world nature of podcast, uh, distribution around the world is possible. Uh, you know, it cost it cost us no more to get a podcast distributed to the person who lives next door to me than the person who lives uh, all the way on on the other side of the world. Uh, so that gives you the opportunity to get really, really narrow, and I and I think that's that's the that's the option here, or that's the point here, and that's true not just in podcasting, but it's true in entrepreneurship and business as well because of the global economy. Uh, we now have ways uh, of of having a very very narrow, very 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 niche product, and you can ship that around the world and get it into customers' hands. Whereas a hundred years ago, uh, you know, e- economies worked very regionally. It was uh, you know within uh, two three hundred miles of uh, of your manufacturing facility. That was it. That was your distribution. So you had, to, you had to find enough people in that geographic region to build a successful business. Now your geographic region is all around the world. And um, I think that's the same thing with podcast. It, it enables you to be really, really narrow and really focused because you can access customers. And I, again, this parallels entrepreneurship and business as well. And I think that's the big thing that has changed uh, in, in sort of entrepreneurship and in business in the last 30 years. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about things and how we communicate and how things will change in the post-COVID world in terms of being global markets and uh, reaching global markets, how uh, the rise of nationalism will impact our ability to go into new markets and to reach people in different cultures and countries. All this stuff is fascinating, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming years. So my last question for you, Bela, is, Franz is a great storyteller, and I loved his story about crossing the ocean in the sailboat, and I could see why people, you know, you love his podcast, and people love his podcast. Uh, do you have an ocean crossing in your future? Uh, I do not think so, Mike. And Well, let me rephrase it this way. If weather forecasting gets a whole heck of a lot better, meaning it can be accurate for the next uh, 20, 21 days, uh, then I might have one in my future. Um I have spent uh, a few uh, days and nights uh, out on the ocean um, in very rough seas. Well, not very rough. Uh, for me, they were rough. Uh, and I, uh, so the, the challenge is the longer you go out, the greater the probability that you don't know what the weather is going to be. And the ocean can be a very nasty place. And my risk tolerance for that is very low. So I don't think there's going to be an ocean crossing. I think I'm, I like to stay uh, within a day of land. So if something happens, um, I, can, uh, I can get back to terra firma very quickly. And well, let me tell you a, an interesting thing. When, when we sailed last year, last summer, I sailed from uh, Nova Scotia back to uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, I think I have this correct. 
I believe that the range of the Coast Guard helicopter is about 150 miles. So in other words, they can take off, they can fly out 150 miles, and then they can come back uh, to land. So the total range is 300 miles, but they can come out about 150 miles. Uh, so when we plotted our course back, we were always inside that 150 mile limit <laughs> to, to make sure that if something happened, right? I mean, you think about it, right? You can get appendicitis or all sorts of things can happen, right? You can get hit in the head with the boom on the mat uh, of the sailboat. So, uh, we, we were always within Coast Guard helicopter range. Uh, and so that's my rule of thumb. So it's there is no like- way to get... Yeah, it's just like There's, investing and being an entrepreneur. You got to know what your risk tolerance is and stick to it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, what do you think, Bela? Time to wrap it up? You betcha. All right. So thanks again for joining us, listeners, for another adventure this week. We hope you find the last hour interesting and thought-provoking like we did. If you have questions about what we discussed today or want to reach out, feel free to email us. Uh, at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and please do subscribe if you haven't already. So until next week, signing off from upstate New York. Have a great week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. Uh, Thinking about schnitzel tonight for dinner. So we'll see what happens from over here in Münster, Germany. Have a great week.